Welcome everyone to this podcast series. Um, the purpose of this series is to discuss some of the biggest issues we face in the world today and issues we may face over the next decade. We're not here to solve these issues, just to bring them into focus. Alongside this series, we are running an online residency programme called Tech for the Public Good. We're working with artists, creatives and academics from around the world and they are prototyping solutions using technology and creativity for one issue that they will collectively decide upon. The conversations in this podcast series are aimed to inform their process and get them talking about their own experiences or prompting creative responses. The three topics we are discussing in this series are mental health, gender equality and women's rights and climate change. And today we are talking about mental health and we're bringing together a group of amazing individuals and we'll be putting to them some of the questions raised by our cohort of our Tech for the Public Good group. Uh, Today we have myself, um, Matt Allen, who is the creative technologist at Leeds 2023. I'm also joined by Adam Saskaronski, who is also a creative technologist who I have a job share with, Dr. Shabon Hughes-Jones from the University of Leeds, Kate Goldring, the Business Development Director at Leeds Mind, and Johnny Benjamin, MBE Mental Health Campaigner. So I wanted to start by asking you all to just do a very brief introduction to yourself. So I'll start with me um, to kick us off. I'm uh, Matt Allen. I am, as I said, the creative technologist at Leeds 2023. I'm also a digital artist and make work about anxiety from a lived experience. Uh, And so Adam, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Adam Saskaronski and I could pretty much say the exact same thing as Matt. I work at Leeds 2023 (laughs) as a job share with him as a creative technologist. And we also work or run a company called Close Forum, which is our, our arts practice where we make work on mental health and more specifically we did a project or we had a project this year of yeah this year which we created called anxiety arcade which is a full-sized arcade cabinet uh, that is playable and it's about a 20 minute experience um dr shabon hughes jones would you like to introduce yourself yeah sure hi nice to be here so i work at the school of psychology at the university of leeds and i research Um, all aspects of teenage mental health in particular and I also work in some low and middle income countries so exploring very different cultural influences and possibilities in terms of how how we can support young people's mental health. Thank you very much. Um, Kate, uh, Kate Goldring, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, Uh, my name is Kate Goldring. I am mum of one, Leeds resident, born and bred, Um, so quite appropriate I'm on this chat. I have my own lived experience of mental health after struggling with postnatal depression around almost nine years ago. He's nearly nine now. Um, really passionate about the subject and now also work in the uh, in the mental health sector. And I'm business development director at Leeds Mind, a local mental health charity. Thank you. Um, and Johnny Benjamin. Yeah. Hi, I'm Johnny. Um, really good to be here. Uh, I also have my own lived experience of mental health issues. Uh, I was diagnosed with a form of schizophrenia when I was 20. And now um, I'm um, an author and a filmmaker and I have my own youth mental health charity called Beyond, which is a national youth mental health charity. Thank you so much. Uh, it seems like we've got a great group together, so really excited for the conversation. Also, just to say to people listening at home that 
We are recording this podcast over Zoom, so apologies if there's any beeps, uh, dogs in the background, cats jumping on our laps, um, things of that nature. Uh, it, I'm sure we're all very used to that by now, uh, and we are hoping that this just be a quite a informal, casual conversation between us. Um, so we have some questions that have been put to us by participants of our um, Tech for Public Good program, which um, we thought we'd start with these as, as conversation starters. Um, so uh, the first question was raised by one of our participants from Ghana, and um, they said in uh, parts of Africa uh, and areas across the UK and the world, mental health issues are not given a lot of importance as they're sometimes considered uh, not real issues. Uh, there can be a lot of stigma attached to mental health issues, even without the pandemic, good quality mental health was difficult to access and the costs were often prohibitive. Uh, so how can we make mental health healthcare available, convenient, accessible and affordable uh, to the um, to typically underserved populations. So I thought um, maybe we could start with uh, Kate with that question and then we'll pass it around and see uh, what we get to from that. Yeah, no problem, happy to kick things off. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more really, you know, we're, we're in a position where we have communities that are drastically underserved by mental health services. And my take is sort of a local take. I work in Leeds with a local charity. Um, and as we move into our next strategy period, which sounds very corporate speak, um, but for 22 to 25, some of the key themes that we're already identifying is in this area. Um, one of the things nationally that mine's looking at is the importance of being an anti-racist organisation and engaging with um, communities that are traditionally underrepresented in mental health services. So interestingly, I, I found some stats around Leeds um, and we, we come fifth in the estimated population distribution of young black men in England and Wales, which is a, a specific target group for us. And the research shows that young black men are three times more likely to be at risk of suicide uh, and six times more likely than counterparts to be sectioned. Um, so there's, there's obviously some issues there already. So through consultation with other groups in Leeds who already engage with these communities, we've identified that there's a real need for young black men to have access to early preventative and culturally sensitive support. So we've set up our Young Black Minds programme, which is aimed specifically uh, on a peer support model uh, run by someone who has lived experience of mental health difficulty, who is a young black male himself. Um, and we set this up for young black men aged 16 to 25. Um, and it's there's so few things going on like this in the city at the moment. There's some great pockets of work going on, but it doesn't feel that joined up. Mm. So for us, this programme is a way of, of really engaging with those under, underrepresented groups um, in the mental health sector. Um, but but there's, there are some great things going on um, around Leeds and, and I'm sure the world, but seeing those statistics in this day and age, I thought was really, really surprising. And the fact that, you know, stuff like this isn't mainstream already and we aren't, we haven't tackled these issues already was, was really surprising. So it's a great programme. Unfortunately, we've only got two years funding for it, which is always the way in mental health. It's uh, just as we get going with it, we, uh, we need more funding, but you know, so far so good. Um, and the peer support model for us 
with lived experience run by someone who can who can engage with the the, the target group that they're talking to is is key it's pivotal to to its success great thanks um i want to pass that over to johnny and see if we can get uh, any other perspectives on this yeah um it's such a big, it's such a big topic <laughs> um so much so much work to do so much work to do um i went to i went to india uh three or four years ago now um to do some some work there um and it, i was working in um in an orphanage near mumbai and um a lot of the young people in the orphanage suffered from uh suffered from trauma but i mean even the literacy even the word the the there was no language for it there you know mm. um so we had to start right from the very 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 beginning you know um so stigma is still a massive, massive problem, still a massive issue. Um, definitely, I, I know, you know, in the UK, I think we've, we've definitely seen a reduction in, in stigma. Still got a long way to go, but through, you know, amazing things like the Time to Change campaign, which was run by Mind and, and Rethink Mental Illness, you know, we, we've definitely seen a reduction in stigma. But, you know, that's not the same across the world. And I think we need to be really mindful of that. So um, I was doing lots of just very basic sort of just, education and, and training um with with staff at the, at the orphanage and other communities as well in in, in mumbai um so need to start from the very very beginning uh, i was very naive i think going there and thinking oh I, I can do this and this and this and this we can put this in place and that in place but no we have to you know really start from the from the very beginning so my key thing is collaboration um you know this has to be collaborative um uh, in the UK, what we're doing is my charity. Um, we have set up the UK's first kind of um, national database of um, youth mental health providers for schools mm -hmm. and colleges. Because um, you know, schools and colleges they often don't know where where to go, where to start looking for help. We know there's long waiting lists for you know traditional mental health services. So um, we need to look at other ways we can bring support into schools and colleges so that's what we're trying to do but again it's all about collaboration um so whether it be in the uk or, or on a global scale it has to be about joining forces and collaboration too often in mental health things are so siloed you know one person's doing one thing here another person's doing another thing here um so so often what i'm seeing actually um in the mental health space there is more awareness and more campaigns and more organizations but there's often repetition um and if we just came together and worked together you know we could make such a difference so um yeah that's kind of my always what i'm trying to sort of hammer home is the the, the collaboration um it, yeah that's the only way forward great thank you so much um siobhan do you want to pick up on that yeah sure thank you and it's a really good question isn't it because it's the reality of a lot of poorer countries um, where stigma and unusual, I put it that way, unusual beliefs about mental health exist. Um, and I think one of the questions about stigma is there's lots of different forms of stigma. So the self-stigma and how you feel about yourself when you have uh, a mental health difficulty. But there's also lots of forms of public stigma. And that's just not people, that's also employers and institutions and governments. Um, there are all sorts of beliefs about mental health and false beliefs and, uh, and misunderstandings that feed the stigma and fear. Fear is mm -hmm. a big one. People don't really know how to respond to somebody when they say, 
I have depression or I have psychosis. They don't know. So I think it's not just about individual stigma. It's, it's cultural and it's structural stigma as well. And there's some reasonable good evidence that you can tackle stigma, um, but it takes a huge amount of um, effort from large organizations to deliver those. I think one of the things that we're trying to do with research that we're running in India is we're using young people to advocate, to start to change the conversation so that mental health is talked about in the same way as physical health. And actually just by talking about it, normalizing it, that's one way to start to break down stigma. But there is also, I think, the um, real challenge of, um, as, as um, Johnny said that the mental health literacy, this idea that we just don't know the words, we don't we don't have a good understanding. So mental health literacy is a very broad way to start to bring education um, to break down stigma. The challenge with that is we really risk bringing Western ideas of mental health to other countries and imposing a particularly kind of medical idea of mental health to other countries. Mm -hmm. So that's another challenge when we work across countries together on mental health is to really be respectful and honoring of their ways of thinking about mental health and people's capacity uh, to cope well with a mental health problem and, and live a good life with, with a mental health difficulty. Um, the other point about cost, if I could just say about that, um, uh, particularly for poorer countries, uh, the only way that, that we know how to do this in our work is lobbying and to really keep on and on and on raising the profile, particularly of young people's mental health and showing them what a return on investment you could get, if, because that's the way they think, a return on investment you can get by protecting young people's mental health in particular. Um, so that's, that's one way that we're trying to work uh, with, with the kind of cost problem as well. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, Adam, do you have any follow-up questions from that or anything you want to add on or shall yeah. I move on? Yeah. No, I'm just, that kind of made me think about in terms of our own education system. Do you think enough is being done from sort of early levels to talk about mental health? In our, I'm, uh, I didn't uh, grow up in the UK. I grew up abroad in sort of multiple different countries. So I didn't really know, know about the education system here, but do you feel I've worked in university since and sometimes I feel that there's not uh, worked when I work with some of the students and talk to some of the students, I feel like they there's not they sometimes don't have the uh, I can't think of the, well the, the, they don't feel like they've got the language to be able to talk about mental health in the ways that they probably should. Do you think there's enough education done in sort of early years and sort of schools to uh, sort of enable people to talk about it properly? I think my my personal take on this as a mum is there's vast inconsistencies. Um, mm. I'm fortunate in that my little boy goes to the most amazing school where they take mental health really seriously. I've recently supported frontline workers <clears throat> around their mental health um, and that literacy piece, you know, having the, the words to be able to describe how they're feeling, understanding what mental health is. It's streets ahead from anything I had when I was at school, albeit I've just turned 40, so it's quite a while ago, but it's I think the inconsistency between a good school talking about mental health and a school that just ignores it and doesn't doesn't or does the minimum on the PHSE curriculum is is vast. Um, so for me, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what uh, what you both said around you know the the, the youth side of things. Um, 
<laughs> prevention piece is the only way that we're going to have a, a, a literate generation around mental health moving forward and have the capacity to be able to understand their feelings and manage their own mental health. So, yeah, I think for me, it's the inconsistency. Some are doing it incredibly well. Uh, and I've seen that firsthand. Uh, and I've heard stories of other schools where it's just not happening well at all. Yeah, yeah I... Sorry, go on, Johnny. No, you go on, Johnny. Pick it up. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I get so frustrated because um, so often I just see it as a tick box thing when you know when things do happen in schools. It's like um, I do I do various bits in schools, and it's like Johnny, you've got forty minutes. This one assembly Tuesday, the whatever of this, and I'm like, oh, come on, like you know, I can't just do one assembly and just think that mental tick it's done it's just, it's not just schools it's workplaces as mm -hmm. well it's like oh we'll bring an external speaker in we've done mental health everyone's fine you know particularly again with the pandemic you know we have to change this way of thinking and I'm I'm not to get too political but it's really frustrating that the government has chosen to focus so much on the academic side of things after the you know post -pan post pandemic um you know they're so we're speaking to a lot of schools and there's just so much pressure on teachers as well you know teachers and young people um because they've got to get back to you know where they were before the pandemic they've got to catch up catch up catch up and mental health is just ignored not just the young people but the teachers as well you know we, we need we always forget about the teachers i think um mm. and so yeah i i again i just think we've got such a long way to go um you know mental health um and, and physical health. We talk about the parity of esteem between mental health and physical health. You know, they should be on a par. They should, it, it's so far away from that. You know, if mental health was on a par with, with physical health, then we'd be doing so much more in our schools. Because um, if you think of, you know, in our schools, you know, we have um, sport, we do sport with our young people. We do physical health education. You know, it's compulsory and it's a big part of most school sort of curriculum. But mental health still, it's just, yeah, I don't know, it's just a bit on the side. So, um, I mean, it is great. To, I'm, I feel I'm really being really critical. As you say, there are some really good schools that are doing great work. There, there really are. But it needs all schools and colleges and universities to be on the same page with this. Great. Yeah, and uh, um, I, I agree. And I think one of the things that I get frustrated about in terms of, um, you know, our schools doing enough, it's, it's a little bit like, well, their job, they're not mental health professionals. They feel very fearful about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. There's very limited capacity. So I, I, I feel a bit frustrated in some ways when we, and I'm the same, I expect it also from my kids at school. Um, but there's a couple of things around this. I think we need to shift the conversation to not what, what we teach children in schools about mental health. It's about how we change school cultures to support well-being. So we, there's no point delivering kind of assemblies, which I do as well, but I, I'm equally frustrated as Johnny that you get half an hour, but I know they won't do any good. I know that because half an hour of, of talking about, well, you know, uh, feeling low is normal or uh, being anxious about things is understandable. You know, that just isn't enough. And I feel frustrated that we kind of are a little bit obsessed with a curriculum of mental health when we're not looking at the conditions that we're asking people to go to every day, that's actually the cause of many of those difficulties, not all of them, but many of them. So I'd rather broaden this conversation to really um, focusing on what is our school system doing, particularly to young people, uh, particularly teenagers, where we know it's a really, really vulnerable time for the onset of mental health difficulties. 
but also then to look at how can we have this stepped care approach where we can support schools to address some kind of light touch problems, if I put them like that, that could be helped relatively easily, but if left unhelped, might develop into something more substantial. So how can we really um, assist schools in that? Um, so I, I think the shift in the conversation, I'd also like the conversation to shift from actually just talking about mental health, because I think we tend to think about mental health from a slightly negative point of view. We tend to think about mental health problem or difficulty, whereas the word well-being kind of broadens our lens to see this as a full spectrum. So we talk about mental health and well-being, suddenly new things seem possible, I think, rather than just correcting poor mental health. You're so right. And I think talking about schools and then you've both talked about how that extends into other establishments as well. One of my roles at Leeds Mind is to run our commercial training team, which I've rebranded help for employers because training in mental health sort of doesn't feel right either. But we have so many people that come to us saying we need a mental health first aid course. We need to train up mental health first aiders in our in our workforce. And nine times out of 10, I'll drill down and there will be something that's happened in that workforce that has made them go oh we need to do something about mental health because things are bad in our workplace whereas actually when you drill down you talk about the culture and you find out a bit more about what the motivation was for that initial inquiry there are so many other things that need to be done before they reach that mental health first aid system in order to create a culture where that mental health first aid investment will actually work so I think this this tick box thing and we get a lot of schools contact us and with limited capacity, we do the odd assembly, <laughs> same with you guys, um, but it's, it's not going to have that huge impact. So it, it's completely the same with workforce and it comes back down to that question around literacy and understanding. Uh, and as you say, Siobhan, it's culture. I think um, the conversation that we touched on there about well-being uh, is something that leads into our next question about well-being apps um, and mental health online resources. Um, from a personal experience, I started using well-being apps when I was already at like a crisis point, um, when I had like severe anxiety and depression and was looking online for resources to support myself, um, possibly at the point where they were not as useful as they could have been if I'd started using them a lot earlier. Um, so I just wanted to get people's opinions on um, online resources and the, uh, the pitfalls of these, of having non-human interactions, but also um, the, the positives of them. Um, and thought maybe we could uh, talk about the, the two sides of that coin. Um, Kate, do you want to start that off? Yeah, sure. I mean, the pandemic hit and our offices shut and all our services stopped temporarily. And as a small local charity who'd never really heard of Zoom or Teams that much before, it was a bit of a culture shock. Um, so for us, we, we had to really quickly learn a lot about tech. Um, we managed to get all our um, services pretty much online within the first week, which for us was quite the achievement, especially with uh, the state of our IT support. Um, so we managed to deliver a, a service online, which has had some immense benefits um, for a lot of people. There, there was still support available. Um, 
and and it's taught us a lot um although it's not app based there's a there's a real distinction between being in a room with other humans as to being in front of a screen and, and at least my many of us have that lived experience uh, of our own mental health difficulties i need to reframe that word now don't i don't know after what Sean's just said um I, and i'm not ashamed to admit this year this year has been one for me i i was seriously seriously ill with covid in july um almost lost my life so when I came out um, of hospital on the 1st of August, um, the this restart of my life, um, I accessed online counselling myself. Um, it, it was more, I've experienced trauma, kind of need to do something to, to, to get ahead of it. Um, and I accessed online counselling. It was virtual. And for me, that was a game changer because, well, A, I couldn't walk far enough or get out of the house mm. enough to, to be able to access it. So it made it accessible. It made it just an hour in my week where I, I logged on and spoke to the most amazing woman ever. Um, and, it, and it made a huge difference. So for me as a human, it was the absolute way forward. Having that tech and that, that, that resource online, um, it, was, it was vital. But while it worked for me, it really doesn't work for others. So from my professional perspective, um, through the pandemic, how have we been supporting those who are digitally excluded? Um, and I think that there's a real, real area there where um, unless you had the tech, so for those from um, deprived communities, we found that there was a, an absence of tech, particularly for young people, um, or for those who weren't tech savvy. Who, so Zoom, again, for, for me mm. as a 40 year old was a bit of an alien concept, but I managed to get, get up to speed with it. Um, but particularly some of the older generation, we found that there was a real skills gap there and a knowledge gap. So we quickly had to um, put together some guides on how to access Zoom. We invested in tablets that we could load out to people who would be able to then access some of this online stuff who didn't have the right uh, right equipment. So there's pros and cons, really, I think, from, from my own personal experience and from my professional experience. Um, and we, at Leeds Mind, we're adopting a real hybrid approach to how we deliver our support now. So both digital, face-to-face -face support. And we find that some people absolutely want the face-to-face -face support, but we find that some people absolutely want to do it from the comfort of their own home. Um, but there was also issues around, is there a safe space, domestic violence in the home, you know, someone accessing counselling where they, they can't. Um, engage in a way that's honest and truthful and beneficial to them so online can be great but it has its, its pitfalls face-to-face -face can be great but it also has its pitfalls so for us moving forward adopting both and really taking some of that learning forward and hopefully moving a bit more into the digital world into app-based technology uh, and, and embracing that a bit more I think will definitely be the way that we go. Great thank you um Siobhan or Johnny, do you, do you want to add anything to that? Go ahead, Johnny. Okay. Um, yeah, I think, you know, so looking back over my whole journey with, um, you know, with my diagnosis, um, you know, at the very beginning, I literally, I couldn't look at someone and talk. It was just, you know, they used to, I was in a, I was in a psychiatric hospital initially and I had to like, they, you know, I was in front of psychiatrists and they and, I couldn't talk I really couldn't talk um you know I was, there, we talked about stigma I was really so embarrassed and ashamed and I didn't have the language I didn't have the confidence so um for me talking therapy didn't initially it, it just didn't help I couldn't talk so 
um for me writing actually writing was the thing that really helped um but that's changed over you know over the last sort of 15 years as I've you know got more got the language got more confidence the stigma of self-stigma is reduced so now I can talk um and so the writing doesn't is not as helpful for me um but again it fluctuates sometimes if I have a relapse I had a relapse last year and you know, again, I, I wasn't, I didn't want to see people when I had my relapse. So basically what I'm trying to say is I think there just needs to be a massive range, massive range mm. of support available uh, to people, like a real, real range. I mean, so with the, with the charity, um, what we're doing is we're funding, um, we're funding different, different sources of support. So, you know, we'll talk to a school and, and maybe drama therapy. Will, will be something that's um, unlocks something for these young people. So we'll be able to fund some drama therapy or maybe it's art therapy um, that, that helps. So, you know, I just, I get frustrated again because, um, you know, so often we just focus on the, maybe the um, more traditional ways of doing things within, within mental health. Um, and we need to be a bit more open-minded. We really mm. do. Um, because, I mean, you talked about gaming, didn't you, earlier on? I mean that's massive for for a lot of people gaming and that's another uh, it could be a a way to unlock a key for someone I think yeah we we really do need a range a range of you know I compare it to something like cancer treatment and um I have a few I know a few people going through cancer treatment and you know I when I talk to them they've been offered lot thankfully they've been offered lots of different um uh, types of treatment support and that's the way it needs to be for mental health but too often it's not it's very much like a one-size-fits-all approach and yeah that's something that needs to change I think. Yeah and I completely endorse that that, that technology uh, or apps or, or anything like a digital approach is really helpful for some people in some circumstances it's it's and I came into this whole area of research in terms of digital mental health really skeptical actually because we know the importance of relationships we know that it's having close empathic relationships is really, really helpful to lots of people. But I've come to learn exactly as Johnny said, that lots of people actually find that quite difficult. And I'm thinking also particularly of autistic young people who don't really want that type of engagement with another person. Um, so, so finding these other ways, and they actually seem to really enjoy a more digital approach. And we're, ex we're kind of experimenting around virtual reality, gaming as well. Uh, we're developing gaming um, for young people who've been through trauma, and we know that trauma, it's a you're the kind of a key marker of trauma is that you want to avoid talking about it and you want to avoid thinking about it. and You don't want to go to therapy for it. So actually getting people uh, a little bit more comfortable thinking about the things that have happened to them via gaming. It seems like the most bizarre way to approach it, but that's what they've asked for when, when you kind of do research with young people. This is something mm -hmm. that they would enjoy. I think the real benefit of something digital for young people is the privacy. Lots of young people are, are interested to learn and kind of do a little bit of self-help, but don't really want to burden parents or worry them and just wants to also maybe feel a little bit um, ashamed about what they're feeling because they don't know how normal it is. So I think there's lots of ways that they can help. However, the well-being app side of things, we know that they're less effective unless you have a need to change. 
So there's no not much point having a sleep app if actually your sleep is fine, <laughs> you know, or, or all that kind of stuff. So it's a bit like like you were saying, Matt, that they kind of they, these tools become useful once you feel you're ready to try something and you, you feel an identified need for it. But the app market is kind of convincing us that we need to do all these things and have all these apps to feel better. And we probably don't. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I think um, there's definitely a business side to um, like tech for well-being that um, I wonder like how much uh, the the focus is on the well-being and how much the fo- or how much the focus is on the profit. Um, we were think one of the questions we had was about. Uh, social media and with that being so prevalent in today's society especially uh, through the pandemic um how do we protect ourselves from the potentially harmful effects of social media without just shutting them off um siobhan do you want to start with that this time that really easy question (laughs) that's such an easy question Well, you know, we see we're seeing this constantly get um, played out, don't, don't we, amongst the, the major companies and then uh, society challenging them on what they're doing. So I think this is a long battle, actually, that we're in and we have to keep it up. Um, I think we have to take very seriously, very, very seriously, the potential for harm, but without throwing out the baby with the bathwater, because lots of young people, it's a vital part of their life. It's a very healthy part of their life. Um, and. I think one of the things that I'm interested in is, is a bit more responsibility from our social media companies. I'd like, to, I'd like to see them help young people particularly register what social media is doing to them in the moment. Some mm-hmm. way, an emotional awareness of, is this helping? Is this making me feel good? Is this bringing me down? And also like a, almost like an algorithm that would learn what kind of content is actually not good for this young person. And so they just don't get it. Um, but also to help young people to be more mindful, I guess, about like what's going on when you're reading this, when you're posting these things. Is this good for you? Is it not good for you? So responsibility that in partnership, I guess, across people and companies um, would be something I'm interested in. But but it's it's you know I'm stating the obvious by saying it's really really complex um, because social media is vast. It's very different. People's use of it is very different. There's different levels of harm. So I don't think we can just talk about it's good or bad for people. Yeah. Um, Johnny, do you, do you want to add anything onto this super easy question? <laughs> yeah, I just think there needs to be so much more, yeah, education, education, awareness, but not just for, in terms of young people, but teachers and parents actually as well. Um, you know, so many times talk to a school and a school will say we've got this issue and the parents aren't dealing with it. And the parents will say, it's the teachers that should deal with it. And no one wants to take responsibility or no one knows how to deal with it. I mean, some of these issues that come up are really complex and, um, you know, particularly around actually WhatsApp. Um, talk to a lot of young people about WhatsApp. And um, I mean, I find WhatsApp even a struggle sometimes. I have so many different groups and I miss things in groups. And sometimes there's conflicts on WhatsApp and I don't know what to do and, you know, I mean, for a young person, um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, that social, that social interaction is so important, you know, friendship groups and, you know, um, people just don't know how to deal with, with um, conflict, tension on, on particularly WhatsApp, I'd say, or the other social media platforms as well, but no one seems to talk about 
about WhatsApp. And I really do worry about the impact that's having um, on particularly young people's mental health. Um, again, I'd like to see, you know, these um, companies um, doing a lot more. Um, they're just not doing enough. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, again, we just got to keep putting pressure, more and more pressure, more and more pressure. Um, and eventually, hopefully, they'll take some action, hopefully. Yeah. Um, Kate, do you have anything you'd like to add to this? Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I agree with everything that's been said. There's so many issues and WhatsApp, particularly Johnny. I mean, how often is your phone pinging with the amount of groups you're in? It, it's, uh, it's a full-time job in itself, but... I do think social media has its issues. You know, that's that's a given. I don't want to underplay that. Mm. But it gets a really bad reputation. And like Siobhan said, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. So through this pandemic, imagine if this had hit 30 years ago, the issues around social isolation and loneliness would have been absolutely well they're already huge but it would have been exacerbated so much more by the absence of this tech that's allowed us to remain connected with our communities connected with our friends and connected with strangers in a lot of ways as well so an example one of my best mates um lives in melbourne she lives in the center of melbourne which was one of the most uh, i think it's i think it's got the the title of the most locked down city in the world at one point and um, she couldn't travel beyond 5k of her house. She lives on her own. She worked from home. At some points, she didn't have work. So she was literally in this bubble on her own. Through the world of WhatsApp, you know, we were doing WhatsApp phone calls regularly because uh, she knew that I'd come out of hospital and she was on her own. And, you know, so we connected in a way that was financially accessible because previously when she first moved back to us, it cost a fortune to call her. Um, she was engaging in a more passive way through Facebook, you know, seeing what her friends are doing um, all over the world. So there's huge positivities there. Um, the, the other positive effect for me around social media is that ability to engage with strangers. So, again, I keep talking about personal examples. That's just just me. But so post COVID, um, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk about that actually would be sort of almost give secondary trauma to the people that I love because they love me. You know, they, they would worry about me. So I was lucky enough to stumble across a COVID survivors group, which has been a lifeline. And I've engaged with these strangers on a platform that just wouldn't have been available to me all those years ago and um, before social media. So that, that's been incredible. Um, and I've also set up my own Insta feed, which is really anonymous. No one knows it's me, but it's all the sort of warts and all journey around COVID recovery. And through that, I've created this amazing community of fellow COVID survivors, long haulers, whatever you want to call us, um, who have this shared knowledge, these shared experiences. So for me, tech has been a real force for good um, in that sense. So yeah there's, there's loads of flaws there's loads of issues around the censorship and standards and how you know the keyboard warriors are behaving and how divisive it can be around certain certain subjects but there's some really good bits as well so let's not let's not lose sight of those yeah i am also on some long covid recovery groups um uh, and without them uh, i wouldn't have been able to have conversations with people uh, I've been offered you know support from across the world and being able to make sure I'm getting the right support locally so I guess I'm just agreeing that like there are definitely some benefits um, of social media that I'd, I'd never seen before because I'd only really used social media in the past to keep in contact with friends and advertise events 
Mm. Um, and now I use it more for connecting with global networks. Um, we touched on it uh, a little bit throughout these conversations, but I thought uh, it's it might be interesting to talk about how um, men the perception of mental health or the um, provisions of mental health have changed through the pandemic and because of the pandemic, because this has been something that has affected people across the world. Um, Johnny, do you want to start with this one? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually. Um, some people have said, well, said to me that they've, I mean, obviously the, the <clears throat> pandemic has been absolutely horrendous for, for you know, well, so many of us and, you know, everything that we've had to go through. But um, for some people that particularly struggle with maybe um, things like agoraphobia, um, having everything go online has been really helpful for them. You know, therapy sessions, individual therapy sessions, group therapy sessions, um, you know, they don't have to go through the whole, um, I don't know, difficulty of having to, you know, leave, leave the house and maybe take public transport or, you know, whatever it is, or maybe if you live in a rural community where, um, you know, access to going to a mental health service is really tough. Things going online has made it so much easier. Um, obviously, there's, there's a, as you know, as with everything, there's, there's a negative, but mm -hmm. it would be good to focus on the, the positives. You know, um, for myself, um, my therapy went straight online um, and... It was great because, yeah, I didn't have to, you know, didn't have to travel there and back and could just, you know, like this, log on 9am Wednesday morning, open my laptop and have that conversation. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the same. It's not the same as, you know, maybe being there one-to-one -one in, in per and it was strange at first and I found it a bit uh, odd and, but, you know, gradually got used to it and actually, um, me and my therapist have agreed that that's how we're going to continue, you know, online. And it, it works for works for him and it works for me and it works for our therapeutic relationship. Um, so there has been benefits, but obviously, again, there's, there has been there has been negatives, but I'm going to try and just focus on the benefits. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I, uh, I would say that through a pandemic, like personally, uh, my anxiety levels uh, are the best we've been in the last decade. Um, and I think that's, uh, again, it's because uh, not having to go outside is um, mm. as beneficial for some people as it is, um, is awful for other people. Um, so it's, there's definitely like, uh, it's, it's good to definitely concentrate on some of the uh, positives of um the new ways of working and uh, the uh, the new things that have like um, come to the forefront because of the pandemic. Um, but obviously, there's also a lot of negatives. Um, Kate, I wondered if you wanted to maybe touch upon um, the uh, effects of the pandemic as well, from your point of view, at Leeds Mind. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen sort of from an umbrella view of uh, the changing mental health of the city. And, you know, there's some, there's some scary stats, really, um, around depression throughout the pandemic. Um, you know, with issues like bereavement, uh, devastating loss of life. I mean, the figures that flash up every day are easy to say. But when you really think about the true impact, um, I think that that's really impactful on our mental health. 
impact of lockdown uh, and now recession, you know, all the financial worries. Have I got a job? Is my furlough going to be throughout this or are they going to make me redundant? You know, all these really scary things. Um, and we know that people are already struggling with their mental health or related issues like um, employment, housing benefits um, and debt have been have probably been hit hardest by the coronavirus. Um, but whilst the stats show that those already struggling with their mental health have been hit hard, um, they also show that a lot of people are experiencing mental health challenges for the very first time. So we're seeing a lot of adults who have previously considered themselves very resilient. And, you know, there's a bit of an old school approach potentially to mental health. Um, that they're actually reaching out for support and and um, acknowledging um, the issues around depression or anxiety for the first time. So how that manifested itself at Leeds Mind um, in the first three months of the lockdown, our inquiries to our front desk, whether um, email, phone calls, messages on Facebook doubled um, in the first three months from what we were we'd seen in the previous year. Um, my my take is that the issues that the pandemic have caused to the nation's mental health are yet to be realised. Um, I think we'll see this in years to come. Um, and whilst, you know, we're seeing that sort of momentum and people reaching out for help and those numbers increasing, I think there's a potential tsunami ahead of us, um, which the, the lack of investment, I mean, we've seen headline grabbing. There's so much money being put into mental health, but it scratches the surface. Um, we're fortunate we've got a few services that really can respond and react really quickly to people who need help right then um so we've established we're working on a grief and loss line um, which isn't just about bereavement it's very much around the loss of a job you know the loss of freedom the uh, breakdown of a relationship all those sorts of things so we've been working on that and we have our peer support program which we really work hard to make sure that there's no waiting list for but then you look at the community mental health um, that's out there and the, the waiting lists for things like IAPT, um, the lack of knowledge for some GPs, that inconsistency. Uh, I mean, again, a personal example, a friend of mine um, went to a GP and expressed suicidal ideation, very recent, and was told to go out and have a run. No follow-up, nothing. So for me, the impact is huge and we're not prepared for it. There needs to be additional investment in the voluntary sector, in the NHS, across culture and society, as that's the only way that we're going to be able to tackle this when we realise the full impact um, of the pandemic on the nation's mental health. Yeah, and um, there's definitely going to be inequalities of the provisions available across the world as well, as we've talked about earlier. Mm. Um, Siobhan, do you have anything you'd like to yeah, add? Just, to this? I'll just add that actually, you know, and, and huge inequalities in, in the UK uh, in mm -hmm. terms of um, who are, who's being affected by mental health in the pandemic and who has access to good support. Um, it's a major, major embarrassment is completely the wrong word, but it's shameful. It's shameful that um, the, these effects are, are the burden of, of the pandemic on mental health is falling on, on disproportionately on certain groups. Um, and of course, we don't yet know the long uh, term effects of long COVID on mental health. So we do, uh, along with the things that Kate was calling for, I'd also say we need to keep investing in research about, particularly from a neurological level, about what, what has changed in the brain through COVID that could actually be impacting mental health for, uh, across a range of problems from dementia through to depression. 
this this is going to this needs rapid investments um, because I'm sure that we, you know, we've got we've got good treatments we've got good medication for those who need it but we need to understand what 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 would actually work best for certain groups um, and I think when, when sometimes people who have no experience have no lived experience of mental health difficulties they don't understand why a pandemic would necessarily worsen your mental health they don't get it and we've been studying and we're still studying first year students who have prior experience or existing mental health and to understand their lived experience and they talk about the problem of too much time too many thoughts not enough structure so when your sleep is chaotic and your day feels disorienting it affects your mood it affects the way that you think you worry about new things you feel differently about yourself you feel more on the edge of society it's a whole whirlwind of interacting effects that can happen in these isolating bizarre circumstances that we found ourselves in and actually when you feel exhausted and you're not sure of yourself and you're not sure of the world actually coming through that resiliently as people like to talk about it just it's just not doable it just isn't doable for many people um so i think that, that there needs to be much more empathy um, and understanding about how the world is for a lot of people and how that became um so frightening actually for lots of people during the pandemic um so yes as kate says we've we've got a long way to go in understanding the full-term impacts and but lots of ways that we could actually mitigate some of those effects if we act quickly. Thank you. Um, Adam, um, have you got anything you'd like to add to round off this podcast? Uh, no, I think I just, I completely agree. So from my perspective, I'm still on the edge of finishing shielding. So I'm extremely clinically vulnerable and I, I pretty much am not, apart from going to the hospital, and going out for walks i've not sort of been outside since march the 6th 2020 so uh for me it was initially a benefit um pandemic because a lot of my mental health issues actually came from my physical problems and when i had i used to have a very physical job and so from not being out not doing all the stuff i was able to actually take a moment back and sort of breathe and kind of sort of really and sort of take a stock check on myself my feelings and kind of so it helped me so for the first year i think i was kind of actually feeling better because I was feeling better physically but then the second year now it is as you say staying with those thoughts kind of I've, I've got a very understanding and an amazing partner who's kind of there for me the whole time but it is that when you are kind of not being able to leave that space you're in the same space the whole time it does sort of it's almost like a shadow growing on you and it gets worse and worse and worse and I think that is something that I know a lot of people that are still in care homes a lot of people that are extremely probably still feel, feel that and they are staying away because they don't feel that the pandemic is over. We're still, for, for sort of people like myself, we're still in the centre of it. It's still something that it's going to be, that's probably something that we're going to kind of be dealing with or I'll be dealing with probably the rest of my life. I, I have to now make the decision whether I'm going to ever go, go to an indoor gig again, whether I'm going to, and I and so I love this, I love going to gigs, but it's all those sort of things. It's those mental choices that I'm having to make. Now, am I going to sort of, sort of not to, uh, sort of risk my safety to do these things I love. So I think that's something that's going to be, uh, for a lot of people, it's going to be a big choice for the rest of their life. And it's, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting position to be in. And so it's kind of, uh, yeah, processing that again, yeah, doing a big stock take and sort of where my priorities are in different things, which is uh, quite an interesting thing to be able to have to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Adam. Um, does anyone have any closing comments, remarks? If not, um, we will wrap up. 
I think I'd just like to say that I think Leeds is a fantastic place for talking about mental health. I think across all different sectors, um, I think uh, it's doing a great, great job to keep it on, to keep us having conversations and bringing people like us together. And I think that's the way that we remain passionate and hopeful about, mm -hmm. uh, about mental health as well. Um, yeah, so thanks very much for bringing us together. Oh, thank you. Um, great. So um, if uh, any of you would like to share uh, your social medias or any upcoming projects, you're very welcome to, but don't feel like you have to. Um, uh, and uh, I'd like to thank you all for being part of this conversation today. And thank you so much to the participants for Tech for Public Good for sending over the questions that prompted such an interesting conversation. Um, so either uh, wrap up by saying your social media handles or just goodbye. Um, over to you, Shavar. Well, from my own mental health, I don't really use social media. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'll just say, uh, yeah, thanks very much for having us. And uh, I you. will kind of forward on some information about our projects as well. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Johnny? Yeah, all, uh, all our social media handles for the charities are at We Are Beyond. And um, we have our next mental health festival coming up in February. Uh, we'd love schools, colleges, universities to sign up. Uh, everything's on our website, wearebeyond.org.uk. And yeah, we'd love as many of you there as possible. Thank you so much. And Kate? Yeah, I mean, you can find me on most social media, some of which isn't very professional. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you look for at Leeds Mind on all, all platforms, where we try to do our best to be across all of them. Um, and we have got a campaign out at the moment to try and get people's feedback um, around our next strategy and how we can best support people in Leeds. And I appreciate our audience is, is more global. Um, but please do take a look on our social media feeds and feed into that if it's relevant to you. Um, but thanks so much for such a great, honest and open conversation today. It's been, it's been really good fun. Thank you so much. And yeah, thank you to everyone for being here. We are at Leeds underscore 2023 on Twitter. Um, and you can find us at leeds2023.co.uk. Thanks so much, everyone, for the great discussions today. Uh, and we'll be back soon with more. Thank you. <laughs>